Hey, everybody at Refuge. This is actually Refuge Girls. This is my first little recording session we have here. Actually, we tried to record it the night that me and Matt separated, and I talked to the girls, and he talked to the guys, but neither one of us recorded, so I think that uh, qualifies as an epic fail. But um, tonight, we are today, I guess, we're going to be talking to you about gender roles. That's kind of our topic today. What does it mean to be a godly woman? So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in, but I do want to say hello to all the girls who are away at school. We love you and we miss you, and we cannot wait for you to come home over Thanksgiving and just get caught up and um, all the things that you have been going through at school, and we just want you to know that you are loved and we miss you, so come home soon. All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 3 is where we're going to start. This is not where we're going to land, but this is where we're going to start. Verse 2 says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul had a concern for the Corinthian church. He was afraid that they were going to be deceived just like Eve was away from their pure devotion to Christ. Today, we are still as a church and God's people promised to Christ. He is our husband. But like Paul was afraid for the Corinthians, I am afraid for us. I'm afraid that we are on the precipice of believing lies that would dull our delight, our love, and our minds away from our first love, who is Christ, our Savior. I want us to be wise, godly women, fully aware of the devil's schemes and the unhealthy patterns of this world. And a major area of potential danger, deception, and confusion is in our understanding of what it means to be a woman. And I hope to bring some clarity straight from God's word for you today. So we've in previous weeks, we've looked at Genesis 1 through 3, and Matt's done such a great job at that. And we're just going to jump right into Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So I created man in his own image. Oh, so God created man. I didn't create man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this verse, we see that not only was mankind created in God's image and bear his image with equal brilliance, we are also both created male and female. We as women display God's image in a uniquely feminine way, just as men display his image in a uniquely masculine way. And later on in verse 31, God declared that his creation was good. So having both male and female was a really good thing. Today, our society embraces the deception that gender roles of male and female are blurry they're overlapping and they're optional. That gender has everything to do with nurture and nothing to do with the God-given nature. You can pick what gender you will be attracted to. You can even decide what gender you are going to see. Well, we're about to see in Genesis 2 that the roles for men and women were set up at creation, pre-fall, pre-curse, and are a part of God's great plan for us. When we live out the roles God has for us, it is a beautiful image of God's perfection. It points people to Him. So Genesis 1, we see creation in a broad stroke, each day described, and we see where mankind's creation fits in with the rest of creation. But in Genesis 2, we're taking a detailed look at day 6, the day God created mankind and all that it entails. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
This verse shows us that man was created first. God used this to symbolize man's leadership responsibilities. We know this to be true because Paul actually uses this reasoning again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 to build proof of why males are given leadership in the church. God made them first, therefore they are the leaders. In the past, when I would hear this, I used to immediately think, whoa, this is not fair. What is so special about men that they get to lead? Aren't I just as smart as them? I felt like my intelligence was under attack. And then that song would pop into my head. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. You see, I would just fight it. This is where my predisposition to sin comes in. My natural but ungodly desire is to rule over men. In particular, if I was married, it would be to rule over my husband. God, but God, who is all wise, God, who is good, has ordered relationships between men and women from the start. And he has given men the responsibility to lead and women the task of being a helper. These different roles do not mean that one is more important than the other or one is better than the other, simply that God has assigned us different jobs to live out on this earth. Both men and women are equal in worth and in personhood, but have a different role to fulfill on this earth. And this brings us to our first step in being a godly woman and reclaiming a proper model of womanhood. It is in surrendering our rights. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we are accepting Christ as our Lord. We are letting go of our ways, our demands, our wants and desires, and letting God control every part of our life, including the area of how the relationship between men and women are ordered. For me, through a process of studying His Word, being mentored by godly women that lived out godly womanhood, God has helped me to understand the beauty of this relationship. And just remember, when we surrender our ways to the Lord, He is a good God. He wants what is best for us. That's something that we can just rest in today. Genesis 2 verse 15 says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And verse 19 says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. See, in God's perfect place, the garden, men have a job with responsibilities. Men have been given just a great capacity to lead if they will. Adam didn't just lay around the garden all day eating and playing Xbox. He was supposed to be tending the garden. Today, ladies, a major quality that you're looking for in a guy that you'll marry is that he will have a good work ethic. Keep in mind that ultimately, you're looking to this man to be the provider for your home. Now, since you're in college, the guys around you will probably not be in their career yet, but you can observe how they apply themselves in school and any type of small job they have. If they are not doing school, for the glory of God and working hard, what makes you think they will in their, quote, real job? And something, okay, this is just a little side note here, just a little pet peeve of mine. I just want to share something that I witnessed constantly when I was in college. So many times I would see guys in class playing games on their cell phone or even going so far as to skip class. And then they would turn around to the closest girl and flash just a super charming smile with a little ding sparkle would go off. And that he would ask that girl for her notes. And almost every single time that girl would give it to them, acting all like they were flattered. Girls, please do not do this. 
this. Do not be that girl. You're not helping them. You're just enabling them to throw off their responsibilities as being leader. That was just a little side note. Um, But going back to our topic here, a deception that we as women have come to believe in this area is that working and leading are the only two ways women will find ultimate fulfillment and be acknowledged as more of the second class citizens. In our society, working outside the home is what brings a woman her worth. But I want to bring you to another verse which talks about a woman's priority, and it's Titus 2, verse 5. A woman is to be busy in the home. Some of you are like, wait a second, you mean I have to work at home? But I'm in school right now. I'm studying to be a doctor or a school teacher or a lawyer. Where does this fit? At times, depending on your life stage or circumstances, working outside the home may be necessary. If you're a single or a single mom or your husband has a debilitating illness, you're newly married, for example. But in all these cases, in every case, a woman's priority is the home. In other words, her main base of operation is still the home. And this still applies to us who are single. We do not have to wait until we are married to cultivate a love for the home. We all live somewhere, even if it's still with our parents. We can make it a place that glorifies God. The home should be a place where people are shown hospitality that is orderly and reflects the order of God, where a family's needs are met, where you can serve the poor and the needy. It is a place where a woman is uniquely gifted at displaying her creativity and God-centered love. The world feeds us lies and says things like, you can have it all, a full-blown career, a family, a marriage, and do it all well, and there's something wrong with you if you can't make it all happen. That is the American dream. You see, this is not completely true. You can have it all, sure, but just usually not at the same time. If you try to do all these things, something is going to suffer, and it will usually be your kids or your marriage. If your career takes away from your kids and your husband, then you must reshift your priorities, quit or cut back on hours, or work from home, lower your cost of living, something. Because this verse in Titus is saying to us, our main ministry is to our home. But also, I think Proverbs 31 talks about this same passage where she does, she works and she She does all these things that are outside the home, but her priority is always, always the home. The things that she does outside the home do not take away from her ability to be creative and to love her home. Genesis verses 16, chapter 2, verse 16 through 17 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. God was trusting, entrusting Adam to pass the law on to Eve, giving him the role as the primary teacher and spiritual leader in their relationship. This needs to be a standard we hold men to as we consider marriage. Women may be tempted to overlook his lack of spiritual leadership in dating and marriage for several reasons. One of them, number one, probably number one, if he is charming. Girls, uh, myself included, is so susceptible to charm. And I can give you an example. This summer, me and my best friend, we just had this crush on this famous movie star. I'm not going to say who it is, but he is sings a lot. He plays, he's really good at basketball. And the girls in our Proverbs 31 Bible study over the summer will so know who it is. Um, but really the only thing that I was attracted to was his charm. If I actually thought about dating him in real life, I mean, the man is so not a Christian. Who knows what his values are? Um, he is just not even anywhere close to that. But I really found myself thinking, oh, like, what if I could date him? Like, I am crazy. Like, what was I thinking? And, um, 
I was falling into his charms. We are so susceptible to charms. But I'm going to share with you another verse is that in Proverbs 31, it says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Well, to that part was this charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. That not only applies to women, it applies to men just as much because they we both have charm and we both have beauty and they both do not work. Charm is deceptive. Girls, we need to remember this as we are dating these guys, that if they're charming and nothing else, then we need to move on. Another thing that we will compromise on is that if, if for any reason is that sometimes men, they can provide security in other areas of life. And they may not be the best at being a spiritual leader, but they can provide us a nice house or a lot of money, a lot of material things. And we think that that is going to be enough to get the work of life done. And it's just not. Or we think that we will or he's going to change and he's going to grow after we marry him, which may not always be the case. See, ladies, before before we marry, we need to ask ourselves: is he my spiritual leader? Can I see myself submitting to him as a husband one day and honoring him as a leader in our relationship? Is he leading you to know and to love God more? Are you growing in a relationship with God because you're in a relationship with this man? If he never changes, will I be content in staying with him? And here's a hint. Your answer needs to be yes. Yes to all of these. So not only is Adam the teacher and spiritual leader in his relationship with Eve, Paul uses Adam and Eve's example in 1 Timothy chapter 2, again, for why men are to lead in the church and why we have a man as our pastor. It's the man's job to lead the church in a God-glorifying direction. So in the area of church, women tend to try to take away from this role for men, or men try to try to give up their role and pass it on to us. It may be with the absolute best intentions, but it does not always make it the best decision. Decisions. Women, we are very observant of our environment and other people's feelings. We can easily spot needs if we see a need. We automatically think that we have to be the one to fill it when sometimes God has revealed that need so that we would pray for God to send male leadership or so that we can encourage guys around us to step up. Sometimes we need to wait and pray rather than do. Here's just a few some practical things that I like to do in a church environment to encourage guys to lead. When we are in a large group, I rarely volunteer to pray when it comes time. Often I will pray silently that a guy will do it, or after a while with no volunteers, I'll ask a guy to pray. There's nothing wrong with women praying. If God tells you to pray, then do it. Sometimes guys ask you to do it. So great. That's awesome. Pray. But it's just a small gesture that I do to show some respect. I also try to ask guys' opinions in group discussions and seek advice from godly men when making a decision. And the thing I do is I try to offer encouragement when they do step out and lead. I think we can be really critical of guys in leadership because basically their lives and sins are on display. Their faults are more highly visible than when sitting on the sidelines. And it is really tough to be out there in front of the world. So let's try to show them some grace rather than a critical heart. If they are wrong, which they could very well be, going to them one-on-one is a biblical model and not calling them out publicly or complaining about them behind their backs. Here are some questions that we need to be asking ourselves as well as before taking on a task at church. Number one, we need to ask not if we can do a certain task, but if we should do a certain task. Number two, is this part of the role that God has given me to fulfill as a woman and a helper? 
And number three, is this honoring the men around me? Am I encouraging them to lead or am I enabling them to be more passive? All right, moving on. Genesis 2 verses 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a super a helper suitable for him. God declared the woman's primary role. She was to be Adam's helper. She was not meant to be a helper in a way that's inferior to Adam. She was to be a helper suitable for him or comparable to him or fit for him. She was his equal. They were different but complementary to one another. The term helper is not a demeaning term. And I think there's a lot of popular literature out there, maybe even some evangelical literature literature out there that would say that being a helper is demeaning or it's less than the leader. See, but we cannot say that because the Lord himself is called our helper. Hebrew, just to give you one example, there are many, but one Hebrews 13, five through seven says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If helper is good enough for God, then it is certainly good enough for us. So what does it mean to be a helper? I have a great definition. It's from written by John Piper, and you can find it in the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, although I'm sure it's written many other places. But I'm going to read it to you today. At the heart of mature femininity is a frame disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing or different relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing or different relationships. A characteristic that we need to be developing as a godly woman is this habit of making room for the leadership of men in our life. And I'm actually quoting Carolyn Mahaney there, um, who's written a little art or an article in Becoming God's True Woman. It's a great book. I really recommend it. Ask yourself, am I in the habit of showing men respect and deferring to their leadership? This does not just have to be shown in a marriage relationship, but in a relationship with your guy friends and bosses and coworkers and classmates. You are not to submit to them like you would your husband, but give them room to lead. And this goes back to surrendering our rights and letting God's plan roll. And please do not mistake me. This is not a blind following and neither is submission for that matter. But the, and men are not always right. But let's just be respectful when we disagree and go to them with why. We need to remember that we are following God and his ways first over a man. But let's not fall into that cultural trap of hating all things male. It sickens me how much men are made fun of in our society today. They're constantly being emasculated. You can turn on almost any sitcom and their role is being made fun of blatantly by the their female co-stars. Now, the deception we as women can fall into believing is this, that having different roles like a helper versus a leader is equal to having different worth, that being a helper is somehow less than a leader. And the truth is different roles do not mean different worth. And I just want us to look at the relationship within the Trinity. Every member plays a different role. God, the Father is the director, leader. Jesus submits to the Father's will. The Holy Spirit plays a different work in salvation and is our counselor. They all have different roles, but no None are less God. Again, let's just remember, too, that God's word is our standard for living, and our hearts must be surrendered to that. 
this is maybe a hard concept for some of us to swallow since our culture is just so contrary to it. But consider how highly that Christ esteemed women. His plan for salvation for the world pivoted on a young girl's obedience to him. He used Queen Esther to free the Israelites from persecution. Women were key to his ministry. They were part of his followers. Though they were not his disciples, they were still right there with him. He never spoke down to them. Think about the woman who anointed him. He defended her in front of the Pharisees. The woman at the well, he had a conversation with her and he told her about living water. Think about the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus expected her to have an intelligent conversation. He challenged her request to heal her daughter. And she came back to him with an insightful response and her daughter was healed. God loves women and does not consider them less capable. In fact, they're equal in worth and in personhood. We just have a different role than a man. If God thinks that it is a high calling to be a helper, then really, who are we to declare otherwise? Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 23 says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam named woman, again, showing his leadership that he had the authority to name her. Adam gave the woman her own name to recognize that she was distinct from him, but he gave her a name that contained his to recognize the unity between them. There was perfect unity between the sexes before the fall. Sin messed all of that up, but there can be unity again when we follow God's plan for us as women. Genesis Chapter 2, verse 24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is why women, we are not supposed to be the pursuers in the relationship. Men are the initiators. We are the responders. This is not a Victorian idea. It is a biblical one. We are deceived. I cannot even tell you how many romantic comedies I've seen lately where the best friend is like, why are you waiting on him? You give him a call. Or I've even seen a woman actually get on her knees and propose marriage. Okay, this is backwards. And I think that we fall into this deception of thinking that we have to initiate for several reasons. The first one, just honestly, we're impatient. We are not practicing trusting in the Lord for His timing and His ways, but we have hope. Psalm 84, 11 through 12 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. If it is good and of God, He's not going to withhold it from you. We can wait on God's timing. We can wait on Him because He is good. Number two, the next reason we fall into this deception that we have to be the initiators is that we genuinely have never been taught that it's the man's job to pursue. And while I'm telling you today, now you know. And it comes from Genesis verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24. The third reason is that the men around us have never been taught to pursue. So what are we going to do with that? What if all the guys around us don't know it's their job to ask us out and to pursue us because they only see, only know what they see on TV? Well, we can pray, pray, and pray some more for them. That God, We can pray that God would send other godly men to mentor these guys in this area, and we can just refuse to be the initiator. Number four, we want to control the situation. 
this is not a godly attitude. We need to place our trust in God who is sovereign over this and recognize also that the controlling attitude is the result of the fall, is our predisposition to want to rule over our husbands. Ladies, if this man is godly, then he is praying and he will initiate in God's perfect timing. Number five, we don't think that we are worthy of being pursued. God has created you in his image. You are worthy. You are. If a man cannot initiate their relationship, then he is not worth your time. And I just want to remind us single women that femininity is not experienced only in marriage. We are completely feminine, whether we are married or not, and we are able to cultivate all characteristics of femininity outside of marriage. This brings me to my favorite quote on marriage and is by a theologian's name is Bruce Ware. He says, God does speak of marriage as being good and of God. And when the Bible speaks of singleness, it never mentions a loss, but rather the tremendous gains of a single life. Since human marriage is the shadow of the reality of the union of Christ and the church, no believing single will miss out on the reality of marriage, even if God calls him or her to live without the shadow. Marriage on this earth is a shadow. It is not the ultimate relationship and source of happiness. In fact, it is not even eternal. Death does separate you. What marriage does is it serves to encourage holiness in you. It points you to relationship with God, which is the ultimate relationship and source of all joy. All right, now we are moving out of Genesis chapter 2 and moving on to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, the fall has happened and sin has entered the picture. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 says, And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam still considered was is still considered the leader after the fall. God addressed Adam first, affirming that Adam was given the responsibility to lead. Eve ate the fruit first, but even though she ate the fruit first, it was Adam who is held responsible as the leader. He bore responsibility for bringing sin into the world. Very simply put, Romans 5, 12 says, through one man, sin entered the world. So what do we do with this? This should encourage us as women to pray for the men around us, that they would become godly leaders, that they would become godly protectors of women, that they would listen to God before they would listen to us. Pray that we would be a godly influence on them, pointing them to God. See, Adam listened to his wife and he ate the fruit. We have a great responsibility to influence men around us to point them to God, or we could detract them away from God. Let us not fall into that trap either. Let us encourage them to pursue God even more. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Curses, these describe the curses. Curses are a negative effect. They would work against the roles established for men and women. Curses didn't create new roles, but they're going to make it a lot harder for me and you to fulfill the God-given roles that he had already established. Now, verses Uh, 15 is the curse on the serpent that God gives to him. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse is hope. See, Matt talked about this verse in in previous weeks ago, how it is the first piece of good news after the fall, 
this is the first mention that the enemy is going to be defeated. And we know now that this verse is talking about Jesus. God would bring victory through the woman, totally redeeming her mistake and her deception. What a good God that we have. Moving on to verse 16, this is Eve's curse. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The first part of this curse is physical, that multiply pain in childbirth. That is what it said. So I don't think that I need to expound on what that is. I think we all know. One of my best friends gave birth to her first child this year, and she had an epidural, and her motto the whole time was reverse the curse. And also that word pains is actually reversed to emotional sorrow through the entire, not only physical, but emotional. So emotional sorrow through the entire course of rearing a child through childbearing. The whole process of raising a child causes pain. Nothing breaks the heart of a woman like her children. This part of the curse went against a woman's role as a nurturer and life giver. Both will be difficult from now on. I just want you to think about a stereotypical relationship between a mother and a daughter. There's friction. Both are trying to establish their rights over one another. Also think about a woman's relationship with her son. She is stereotypically has trouble surrendering him over to her daughter-in-law because he is just this little man that she has been able to control for so long. And this goes back to the curse, our desire to rule over men. This, But this can be overcome. This does not have to be the norm, even though it is the stereotype. It does not have to be the norm because what Jesus did for us. Second part, the second part of the curse says your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. This introduced the beginnings of the battle of the sexes. Both women's live and male chauvinism has made an appearance. That word desire the definition is to the desire to control, conquer, or have rule over. Instead of helping her husband, she wants to rule him and to control him. That word desire is also used in chapter 4, verse 7, where God is warning Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. See, sin wants to control Cain. And in the same way, now a woman wants to control her husband. It will be her sin nature, her predisposition to want to throw off her role as a helper and then to rule and to lead. In the same way, now her husband is going to want to rule and have dominion and reign over his wife. This curse upon a woman can be overcome, though, through the seed, through Jesus. We can get back to our roles. Verses 17 through 19 is where the man is cursed. Likewise, Adam, he's cursed in his roles by his labor being futile. He was supposed to be the provider, and now it's going to be a huge source of frustration for him. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. See, Adam showed faith in naming the woman. This affirmed his leadership and his hope of redemption. She was called woman up until this point. Now he names the woman Eve, the mother of all living. There is going to be life again. Adam was proclaiming that God would redeem mankind through the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. See, even in the Old Testament, it took faith to be in a relationship with God. No children had yet been born, but Adam affirmed Eve's role as a childbearer, a giver of new life. Her very name, the mother of all living, professed his hope. 
See, most of us in here are not yet mothers, and we do not have to be. But we do not have to be a mom to practice being a nurturer and a giver of new life. We can help nurture other people's children. There are so many opportunities, especially here at our church. And if you're away at school, I'm sure at the churches that you're involved in as well up there to help in the preschool ministry or the children's or youth ministry. We can lead the younger generation into new life by sharing Jesus with them. When I think of a single woman who's also a nurturer and a life giver, I think of missionary Amy Carmichael, who's a single woman who is a missionary in India. She rescued young girls from temple prostitution. She became the mother of countless young ladies. She gave them love, a place to live, and she told them about Jesus. Today, our role as a child bearer is being attacked through the deception that a woman's right to choose what we do with our bodies trumps a baby's right to live. This is a distortion of our role, which is to bring children into this world when we decide to take away life instead of giving it. And I want to be sensitive to those who have been deceived in this way, to those who have chosen to have an abortion, or maybe you have a friend who has. I want to tell you today that the seed of the woman has come in Jesus, and He offers forgiveness freely to you today. If you are struggling with this issue, I invite you to come talk to me or one of our leaders. We want to love you. We want to pray with you. We are not going to judge you. That's not our place. There's also a great agency in Brandon. It's called the Life Care Center, and this deals with this issue as a lot of great resources. I just want you to know today, though, that you are dearly loved and you are forgiven. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It was God who clothed Adam and Eve and gave them hope and forgiveness. We have hope in overcoming these curses and living up to our roles because of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. He took what we deserved. He rose again from the dead. and He paid our debt and purchased us a place in heaven so that we can have eternal life with Him. I want to give you today a word on femininity. It's from Elizabeth Elliot. She is the wife of martyred missionary Jim Elliot. She's one of my favorite authors. If you can pick up any of her books, I highly recommend them. She today holds up Mary as our example. Whatever we lost with Eve is seen fully redeemed in Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. Mary, the woman who the seed of victory came. She says, unlike Eve, who is, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary's answer holds no hesitation about risks or losses or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. This is what I understand the essence of femininity to be. It means surrender. We are going to practice surrender today. We are going to get we're going to practice the essence of what it means to be a woman, the surrender of our rights. Some of you have been believing the lies of this world and some of these lies are as old as creation. What I'm going to ask you to do is to reflect on some of the points of the message that may have touched your heart. Maybe you're surrendering to the Lord some lies or deceptions you have been believing. Maybe you are surrendering some areas of your life that you've been holding on to or you just want to start fresh this semester to give the Lord a new commitment of saying you will follow him wherever he leads. Maybe you have never trusted in Jesus alone to forgive you of your sins and he invites you to do that to him today. So just take some time today 
to write out a prayer of surrender to the Lord. I love writing out prayers. It helps me to stay focused because that that way my prayer time doesn't turn into a time where I write my to-do list for that day in my head. I write it out and it helps me to visualize it and just say very concise and very clearly what I want to say to the Lord. And I'm going to give you a sample prayer. It's one prayed by a missionary. Her name is Betty Stam. She was martyred along with her husband by communists in China. She's 27 years old when she gave the ultimate sacrifice. God used her mightily in her short life. This is the prayer that she prayed. She says, Lord, I give up my own purposes and plans, all my own desires and hopes and ambitions, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever. What a great prayer that is. When our life is surrendered, God can take that seed of surrender and from it grow a new life, a new redeemed and beautiful life. Our surrender is the seed for Him to act in our lives. So let go with me today. This is my prayer. Lord, help us to be surrendered to you. Amen.